0: Well, this morning we come back to the wonderful book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 will be our text for this morning. As we've discussed, Hebrews addresses the superiority of Christ over all things. And inherent in superiority is the idea of authority. Authority. Those possessing authority, and we understand, as Romans 13, 1 tells us, that all authority comes from God. Those upon whom the authority is exercised is also a consideration when we start to understand supremacy and superiority. Oftentimes, authority is wrongly understood in our world, and it is wrongly expressed even more often. Power is used oppressively and when this happens, the Lord provides special men who will rise up to right that wrong, to correct the error and to bring justice to the injustice. William Wilberforce was just such a man in the 17 and 1800s who the Lord raised up during the horrors of the slave trade to bring an end to that atrocity and that abomination to our God. There are a couple of wonderful books about his life. It's an interesting life. He was uh, saved later on in life, uh, a very radical transformation, one that is uh, evidenced as an evangelical salvation, something different in that time in London than the normal Church of England salvation, apparently. Influenced heavily by his aunt and uncle after the passing of his father, and while in their home by George Whitfield. Understandably so. He was a unique young man going to college after the passing of his father and uncle, was very affluent, purchased his way into parliament while in college at 21 years of old, which was the way everyone got into parliament at that time. So uh, some corruption in government, nothing new. He lived a very unbridled social life exercising himself in every way. And then at age 25, he's radically saved in these evangelical conversion. He debated at that point getting out of politics because he realized what was involved. But he was convinced by an Anglican preacher and former slave trader by the name of John Newton to stay with it. He was harshly judging himself, considering his former habits of life and how vulgar they were, his use of time and the way that he would waste it, and, the, and his lack of spirituality. It led to an attack internally and then externally on the immorality and the corruption that he saw in the world around him, but particularly in Parliament. And as you can imagine, it was not particularly well received by those who were enjoying that immoral lifestyle, and eventually Wilberforce took on the slave trade. His work led to the first act against slavery in the United Kingdom, the Slave Trade Act of 1807, and ultimately to the Slave Abolition Act of 1833, the conclusion of which found him near the end of his life and bedridden, and just three days after its passing, he went home to be with his lord. Wilberforce was a powerful advocate in the anti-slavery battle. He was a powerful force for abolition. And it's interesting that today in our text, we really see the ultimate answer for slavery. As authority is often corrupted, and we're familiar with the phrase that absolute power corrupts absolutely, We see today that ultimate correction is evidenced for us in the supremacy of Christ in the conclusion of this section of his message. And this is where our title comes from, the ultimate abolitionist, the ultimate abolitionist. Hebrews 2 beginning in verse 14 is our text and would you be good enough to follow along here as I read through our text before we begin to discuss it. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives for assuredly he does not give help to angels but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he had suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. The ultimate abolitionist. Our text today reveals these three aspects of Christ's superiority. And and you all see these three aspects of superiority. And because of that, there is a necessary response that we too must understand. And that response, beloved, is that we must be freed. We must recognize the bondage which exists in our lives. And we must be unloosed from those chains so that we might live the lives that Christ has called to us and to understand and do so in obedience to the price which he has paid. These three glorious aspects of Christ's superiority that must unloose the chains of your life. Our text today brings us to a conclusion. We've been discussing the superiority of Christ to the angels Hebrews again is all about the superiority of our Lord. The first chapter being about the superiority of the messenger of Jesus himself. And now in the second chapter, we've looked at the superiority of the message of Christ. And this is what we come to a conclusion on today. Chapter 2 hasn't necessarily given us the very message. So one might ask well, indeed, then what is the message if not here revealed? Well, we're told elsewhere in Scripture, verses we're very familiar with. One such verse in 1 John 1.5 that says, This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. Jesus is the God who is revealed. He is the one who brings the light to the world. And the men did not comprehend the light, for they loved darkness more than light. But Jesus is that message of light that comes forward. 1 John 3.11 further says, For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. These draw us back, beloved, to the two greatest commandments. Do you remember the scribe who questioned our Lord and said, what are the greatest commandments? And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself, for in these two, the whole law and the prophets are embodied. And this is the message. This is what we're seeing in the second chapter of Hebrews, that we are to love God who is light, who is Christ, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that then we're to love one another. That it must exercise itself in the body of Christ necessarily. Wonderful for us to understand that. And we understand who the message is about as we have considered this second chapter. The one who must not be ignored, as verses 1 to 5 of chapter 2 said. And it said in verse 3 How will we escape so great a salvation? if we neglect that which was given to us? The answer being, we shall not. We've seen the one who was subjected to the world. In creation, God has subjected man, the world to man, but man could not fulfill that in his fall, and therefore the Son of Man came to beautifully carry that forward, as we saw in verses 5 to 7 as Psalm 8 brought such beautiful color too. We saw the one of subjection, the one who ultimately was made to be subject to all things and then would rise in subjection over everything. Christ fulfilling each of these roles. And then the one who was maximally exalted after his humiliation, after his death, after tasting death for all of us, was raised and exalted up and that we saw last week in verses 9 to 10 because of his sanctifying work of the believer that we are each positionally sanctified in Christ seen now, seen now in the white robes of Christ seen now as holy before our God though we are yet sinners and separated because of that sin but he has positionally sanctified us so that we would be ongoingly sanctified in our daily walks, progressive sanctification. And because of the fulfillment of his prophecy, and in each of these, beloved, he is to be exalted. The concluding stanza of verse 13 really leads us into our text, and we just need to consider for a moment the beauty of the structure of Hebrews and the way the Lord takes us through this. The introductions lead to each of the successive points within the text, and and that's fairly normal grammar, and we would expect that. But what we might not expect is the beauty that exists in the transitions and and conclusions that go on, as per our text specifically. The conclusions tying us to a new section. Paul is going to illuminate things that he'll be bringing up chapters later. And we've spoken a number of times about what I believe to be the accurate representation of Pauline authorship of this book. Who else would have the depth? Who else wrote so much of the New Testament and would have such an experience at beautifully tying together these complex theological themes Wonderful for us to recognize the beauty that's brought forward. And verse 13b draws us into our concluding section here where it says at the end of verse 13, and again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. It, it almost sounds like it's an, an incomplete statement. And that's exactly what he wants us to think. He wants to draw us in to say, well, wh- what do you mean, I and the children? whom you have given me. Well, it takes us back to where the quote came from in Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 18. And in that text, the entire quote in Isaiah 8:18 8, says, "Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion." Christ being spoken of prophetically, that he and the children, he and all believers are signs. They are evidence of God's amazing work. Beloved, we are signs of God's amazing work through Christ, prophetically exemplified this, the beauty of the message. And in the context of those verses from verses 9 to 13, we saw that prophetic exaltation in the beauty of Christ's fulfillment. His transition from subjection to death and that great struggle to this glorious exaltation that he and all the children who have been given to him are signs of God's work, assurance of what God has done. And our tie to verses 14 and 18 are also here in this connection to the children and our ultimate abolitionist in verse 14. Let's look at our first point, which is a companion to the captives. A companion to the captives in verses 14 and 15. Jesus reveals himself, beloved, as a companion to the captives by his association with them. The children being referenced here in verse 14 are, as we've just said, the same as from verse 13, those given by God who are believers, and these each share in the flesh and blood. The word share here is from the Greek word koinonia, which we're very familiar with. It means fellowship. It's a very common word throughout the New Testament, and it is that which means to be shared with by common participation. It means to have a common root or an origin or ancestry that all of these share in that common flesh and blood. That they are all unified in that component. you know what that tells us? That very verse destroys the unbiblical connotations of slavery and of racism to tell us that We are all of one flesh and blood. All of one root. All of one origin. That we we have been brought together from God, originating from that same source, exactly as the scripture tells us. But notice, following that, that Jesus partook of the same. We have a different verb. Why didn't it just say that Jesus also had koinonia, that he also had that same root? Because he did not He had to come and to partake of that. It was a different nature which the Lord had to partake of, had to share in. This was His incarnation, how God came to be man, came from that which He was not, to be that which would redeem and sanctify all of us. It's exactly what we saw prophesied about in that wonderful text that we know so well in Isaiah 9, 6, for unto us... A child is born. Unto us a son is given. And his name shall be wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace. This is the one who was coming not to share in, not to have the same nature, but to partake of a nature which was not his own. The child was revealed in the man Jesus and John 1.14 tells us about that. Where John writes in the 14th verse of the first chapter and he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. They had seen the glory in the flesh. They had seen the transfiguration. John writes around A.D. 95, long after the other writers, at the conclusion of the New Testament writings, and in his gospel, he reveals to us here in the incarnation of Christ the glory which was revealed to them on the Mount of Transfiguration. That which they saw, they saw the glory of the only God revealed in this man. We'll see much more of this as we get down to verse 17. But there is a beautiful association, beloved, of Christ with us. Something which he did not have, which he did not need to do, which we could not necessitate on our own because we were all of one nature and him of another. And then we see his first act of companionship toward the captives in the middle of verse 14. He rendered powerless him who had the power. If someone is going to be an abolitionist, he has to have the power. Wilberforce was a major power because of his finances and because of his position in parliament. Well, what do we know of our Lord regarding power? Is he not the one with all power? Is that not what the Great Commission tells us? And Jesus came up and spoke to them at the end of Matthew and said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. What a glorious picture of power revealed. You know, Daniel 7.13 prophesied of this same power. We spoke about that in our Wednesday night study on Ezekiel when we were looking at chapter 1 in the vision of the glory of God for it is repeated in Daniel 7. But there in Daniel 7.13 it says, I kept looking in the night vision and behold with the clouds of heaven one like the Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. He's given dominion over all people. He is given and possesses all power, all authority. Jesus himself said in Matthew eleven twenty seven that all things have been handed over to me by my Father. Colossians 2, 9 says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the praise of God the Father. He has all power. Romans 14:9 says, "For to this end Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living." Think about that for a minute. All of our texts talk about him sharing with flesh and blood, sharing with the living. He is the Lord not just of the living but of the dead. Those who would contrive otherwise and say that there is no power over death, that at death everything ends are absolutely going completely against this scripture. He governs all. This is the magnificent power. Do you know, you know the wonderful children's song? There's power, power, power in the blood. Wonder working power. That's exactly what we're talking about. And how was this power evidenced? Well, we see it there in verse 14. Through death. There are many earthly forces, aren't there, beloved? Many things that come against us. Men, beasts, physical afflictions, but none compares to death. It it isn't just death, but it's him who has the power over death. Were we to wonder about that, let me assure you, I have seen this so clearly evidenced that the power of death is the most supreme example that exists on our planet. By being at the bedside of one who is passing from this earth apart from the Lord. The fear upon their faces is overwhelming. And again, it isn't just his victory over death, but the one who has the power over death, over the devil, over the deceiver. None other than Satan himself. Is this not Satan's ultimate power? Was this not his goal in the garden? To separate Adam and Eve from God and to destroy God's perfect creation. And of course, thinking that he had done so as they disobeyed God's command... But God is fully in charge of all of that, recognizing that which would happen and already, of course, having the plan which would bring us life through the one who would crush the head of the enemy. This verb, render powerless, can also be translated as abolish. Now, some translations say destroy, but this really isn't the meaning of that verb. It, it, it means replacement by a superior force, such as darkness gives way to light. Death has been rendered powerless because Jesus has defeated death. In Isaiah 25.8, it foretold of this victory where it says in Isaiah 25.8, he will swallow up death for all time and the Lord God will wipe it." Tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach, the reproach, of His people, from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken, that victory which is yet coming of every tear being dried, every eye being wiped. What a glorious picture for us. First Corinthians in, in verse 15 and 54 talks about this victory over death where it says but when this perishable speaking of the body will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality then will come about the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory o oh, death where is your victory o oh, death where is your sting In heaven this will be removed for that is the truth for the believer. That is the reality that as they pass from this life we will pass directly into the presence of God. What a glorious victory that comes in our Savior Jesus Christ who abolished death and brought life and immortality light through the gospel. Blood, but it is through the gospel. It is only by understanding Jesus' life, it is only by accepting that, that we will recognize that freedom, that we will recognize that victory over death, that that which is so fearful to many will have no sway nor fear in our lives. Well, as the companion to the captives, Jesus has rendered death powerless. And the second aspect of his companion to these captives is in verse 15. Look at that with me. And he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Jesus is setting captives free. Love, the world is in bondage to that fear of death. And the reason is because of Romans 1. They know God. God has revealed himself upon their hearts, but they do not acknowledge him as God. Many young people today would say, you know, I don't fear death. And we see this whole culture developing uh, of these extreme sports and extreme activities. And, and frankly, they are terrifying. These jumping off of cliffs with these wingsuits on and flying above the edge of the cliff and the trees. And, and you're thinking, Really? And they say, I I fear no death. No, that's not the case. It's not the case at all. I believe that this is really the maximum expression of denial. And again, were we to go to the deathbed of one passing from this earth, we would recognize that they know full well the maximum force that they are dealing with in death. And they are indeed in bondage to that slavery. There's even a secular term for that. They call that the death mask. And and unfortunately, you see even faces writhe as one passes away in the fear that has gripped them, completely contrary to the peaceful passing of the believer. Yes, there are still challenges. There are still fears that exist in us. But Jesus has set the captives free. The whole foundation for this idea goes back to the beginning of the Old Testament, back to Leviticus, which we talked about as the foundation for Hebrews. And there in the year of Jubilee, God had designed that even the children of Israel who had to go into bondage, go into slavery because of their debts or other reasons, that on that 50th year they would be released they would be set free. Isaiah 61 spoke about this future setting of captives free. In Isaiah 61.1 it said, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of the vengeance to our God and to comfort all who mourn. This is that final fulfillment at the great white throne judgment. The partial fulfillment now, which we've spoken about in 1 Corinthians 15, that he has conquered death, yet all things are not fully in subjection to him. Death yet still existing. We still have to walk through that gate, but we have the assurance that God is with us. Paul illumines the, the New Testament perspective in Romans 8:15, For he says, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry, Abba, Father. There is no fear for those of us that are sons and daughters of Christ. There is no fear of death. Because we recognize that our Savior has walked the path for us. That our Father is there with us, guiding us through this path. You know, we all understand fear. When I was a a young boy, I used to have some horrific nightmares at at about eight to nine years old. And I'd wake my parents up just screaming. But I'll never forget the comfort I would have when my dad would come in And he'd wrap me in his arms and he'd tell me everything was okay. And I'd recognize it was all right for me to rest and go back to sleep. Beloved, we rest in the arms of our loving, almighty God and Father in heaven who wants us to know that it's all right and that we can rest in him. And we need have no fear over death, that we are not slaves to that fear because we have been released through Christ For the believer, there is no fear in death. You, beloved, are the captives who have been set free. Jesus is superior because he is a companion to the captive. In our second point, he is an advocate to the afflicted in verse 16. Look at verse 16 with me. For assuredly, He does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Jesus, of course, doesn't give help to the angels. We've seen that back in verse 14 of chapter 1, where the angels come to render service to those who will inherit salvation, to us. Jesus does not need to help them. He sends the angels to help us. Intuitively, we know that that is true, but biblically, we know this as well. We know that he does not help angels because of what happened in Genesis chapter 6. When the angels left their proper abode and cohabitated with the daughters of men, and they were cast eternally into the abyss... 1 Peter 3, 19 and 20, talking about those spirits now in prison. But he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. The the word help here really is better translated to have a firm hold of. It's not like he he comes up and just uh, provides a a one-time quick little pat on the back and dust you off when you've fallen. He takes firm control of us. He takes a firm grip upon our lives. Christ has got it. He has got us, and he will never lose us. He says, those whom my father has given me will never be snatched out of my hand. What a gift it is to know of that life, that assurance. These give a more full conception of that help. Those whom he helps are the descendants of Abraham, literally the seed of Abraham. Now here's where we want to draw back and say, who's the book written to? It is written to this Jewish audience. When they heard descendants of Abraham, when they heard seed of Abraham, then their ears would perk up and say, that's us. You're talking about us. We are the seed of Abraham. They would connect to this reference. And those from the chosen line of Isaac and then Jacob. Well, this is exactly what the context meant. But beloved, by application, we too are that seed of Abraham. Abraham. All who are believers in Christ are part of Abraham's seed, as Galatians 3.29 confirms. In Galatians 3.29 it says, And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. We are those who are heirs, but this specifically reflecting those of that Jewish audience who were the believers that he wrote to. This is why Jesus is an advocate for the afflicted. The afflicted are those who partake in flesh and blood, who suffer through sin's afflictions as all do. But it's only the seed of Abraham for who Jesus is an advocate. And specifically the children of Israel in the context of Hebrews. Hebrews. You know, it reminds me of that hymn we sang earlier, which is one of my favorites. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. What a glorious chorus. Hallelujah, what a savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. He is with me to the end. But the second and fourth stanzas of those verses are such a reminder of the one who helps us. They say, Jesus, in the second stanza, Jesus, what a strength in weakness. Let me hide myself in him. Tempted, tried, sometimes failing, he my strength and victory wins. For the fourth stanza, Jesus, what a guide and keeper. While the tempest still is high, storms about me, night or takes me, he, my pilot, hears my cry. Beloved, do the storms come into your life? Do they assail you and do you feel like you have no direction? Don't know where the boat's going? Don't know which way is up? Do you understand the failing in the way that we desire to walk and yet do not? The weakness that is in us when our strength goes away? Tried and tempted? But he wins the victory. Jesus brings help. He takes firm hold of the descendants of Abraham. And what more superior message does one need? He is a companion to the captives. He is an advocate to the afflicted. And in our third point, he is a deliverer from the dead. A deliverer for the dead. Look at verses 17 and 18 with me. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Jesus had to be made like us in all things. A a more literal rendering of this would be, wherefore he was obligated in respect to all things to be made to resemble the brethren. Listen carefully to that. Wherefore he was obligated in respect to all things to be made to resemble the brethren. The the wherefore becomes the the summary statement. Therefore really doesn't carry quite the theological baggage. This is the summary section of everything that we've looked at. And he's bringing it all together. He's wrapping a bow around all of it and saying, all right, wherefore, where all that I have said now is necking down to this particular point. This is much more synoptic and climactic than is therefore. And we'll see that's exactly what it is. The original indicates that he was obligated, as if there was a debt. Now, why? What was his obligation? Well, it all connects to our previous verses. That is, wherefore he was obligated connects with his partaking of flesh and blood and his help to the seed of Abraham. Jesus was obligated to partake of flesh and blood and to bring help to the seed of Abraham. Therein he could not have been born as a Gentile. He had to be the one who took on the flesh and blood as did the children of Israel. For he was first and foremost the redeemer of Israel. That was how it had to be. Now we see this more clearly in our Bibles where it says in verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brethren. Therefore he had to be made. That had to be is that obligation. Scripture demanded he was born a Jew, particularly in the line of Judah and from the house of David. Verse 17 said he had to be made like his brethren. That is, he had to be made to resemble the brethren. This brings to mind the wonderful text in Philippians 2 and verse 6 where it says, Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here is the full-fledged revelation of what we saw begun in verse 14. The full application and the reality of Christ becoming a man. That although he was God, he did not count that something which he would hold on to, which he would grasp but he let that go so that he could come and partake of the flesh and blood so that he could be made in the likeness of man and suffer death that we might have life. Exactly what we talked about in John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Galatians 4.4, 4, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman under the law, that is, under the seed of Abraham. This was so he could become the merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God. Beloved, all of our lives, all of life is focused on God. We don't recognize that at times. We can't in our flesh, for there is a war going on amongst us. But absolutely, with regards to this component of his priesthood and the high priesthood, there had to be that focus. And this is, the point of, this is the point of godliness. It's a point of our piety, of praying without ceasing, and in all things, giving thanks. And in all things, bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. All things are a focus upon God. All the things pertaining to him, but particularly, again, of the priesthood. Now, we spoke earlier about that beautiful style, and this is it. The priesthood is now revealed to us. We see Jesus now being transitioned from superior over the angels to superior over the priesthood, but we're not going to get there clear till chapter 5. Next, we're going to see in chapter 3 his superiority over Moses, and then his superiority over the rest at death in chapter 4. But for now, he focuses on the primary responsibility of the priest. What was that? What did the priest do? He made atonement, didn't he? That was the high priest's job to go in once a year to make atonement for the sins of the people. But our text says propitiation. Is it the same? It is not. Atonement was what happened on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, where for the sins of the nation, the priest went in to seek forgiveness from God as they would sacrifice those animals. But literally, the second the sacrifice concluded, the sin began to again compile itself. Atonement was simply appeasement. It was never complete forgiveness. That's why we see the return of the and reinstitution of the sacrifices in Ezekiel 40. But turn with me as we consider propitiation a little more fully to the book of 1 John. Just a few pages ahead in your Bibles to 1 John in chapter 2 as we consider the full meaning of propitiation. You see, propitiation is the full covering of all sins for all times, not the temporary atonement. That forgiveness at the, at the end of that verse told us that it was for the sins of the people. Now, we don't know who these people were. Was this all of the people? Was this just the believing Jews? Or was it the believers in general? So we look at some other texts to understand propitiation. Look at 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1. My little children... I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. What is this saying? He's writing to my little children. He's writing here specifically addressing the believers in the church. Throughout 1 John, he uses that phrase, my little children, to talk about those whom he loves and who he's addressing in his letter. And he says that they have an advocate with the Father who is Jesus and that Jesus is the propitiation for their sins, for our sins, and not ours only, but for those of the whole world. This gives many people spiritual heartburn. But it shouldn't. There is never a problem within the scripture, only with our understanding of it. Before we make a conclusion, turn two chapters ahead with me to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10. 1 John 4 and verse 10, where we see the next use of propitiation. 1 John 4:10. In this is love Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now clearly this is referencing just the believers. Those whom are loved by God and whom God has loved and sent his son for. So where does this leave us? Is there a problem? Did we have the propitiation being applied to all of the world and now we have propitiation applied to just the believers? No, there is no problem. Christ's death was sufficient for all. 1 John 2.2 told us that. But it is only efficacious, it is only effective to those who will accept Him as Savior. We must allow, beloved, the Bible to speak for itself. We can't do hermeneutical backflips to try and defend God. He does not need our defense. His word will stand on its own. It does not need the support of us in our theology. God has shown us that it is sufficient for all, and we're going to get to more of this as we roll through Hebrews and we understand more about what it meant that Jesus became a guilt offering, start diving in to Leviticus and looking into what that was. We'll get to that in some weeks. For now, let's go back to Hebrews and consider this. This is the role of our great high priest to propitiate for the sins of the people. And his final role is in verse 18, to aid or to rescue. Look at verse 18 with me again. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Now we're going to talk much, much more about Jesus' temptation in the verses in the days ahead. But for now, we see his temptation was in that which he suffered. Where was it, beloved, that Jesus suffered? It was indeed his Passion Week, but I would say, really, more than his Passion Week, it was the Passion Day. It began in full measure in the garden, where he went on beyond the disciples, beyond the three, asked if they would wait and pray with him. And he went and he prayed and sweat great drops of blood as he pled with the Father. This was indeed. A tremendous suffering in temptation. It continued in the trials. It continued through the atrocities of man and through the crucifixion where our Savior was marred more than any man ever. It was through these He suffered. And He suffered greatly more than any man ever. For no man could bear what Jesus took upon Himself in the sins of the world. And even though he took all of this, this was not the end of the Son of Man. This was not the end of God, not physically the end, and certainly not spiritually the end. For we know that three days later, he rose from the grave. But let us not forget his conclusion on the cross. Yes, there was the end. The orphaned cry, it is often called, of Emmanuel. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as the three hours of darkness left, do not forget his final call upon the cross. Not a weak, last breath effort. It is finished. It was a bold proclamation of God who could have taken all that would have been brought to him. It is finished. Because of his suffering, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Beloved, do you struggle with temptation? Every one of us does. All people of all time. And Jesus is there to render aid. A literal translation really would be he is there to rescue us. Jesus rescues those who are tempted. He is a deliverer of the dead because he has made propitiation for sins and he has rescued those who are tempted. This is the superior message. This is the culmination of his superiority of the angels and are launching into the rest of the text. Jesus is a companion to the captives because he renders powerless the devil and the power over death. He sets captives free. He's an advocate for the afflicted because he helps us in our weakness, takes grasp of the seed of Abraham, and he is gloriously a deliverer from the dead as he propitiates for the sins of mankind and rescues those who are tempted. This is Jesus, the ultimate abolitionist. But beloved, you all have a responsibility. Y'all can't just sit there, you have to... Cast those chains off from yourself, now being freed. Your freedom is not to sit there in your old life. You cannot allow that to happen. Or Christ's work is of no value. And we are doing exactly what the warning in verse 3 says. We are risking taking for granted the salvation that's so great a salvation you have to cast those chains off of your heart. Allow your heart to soar in religious affections for Christ, as Edwards talked about. To grow in your love and amazement of what he has done for us. You have to cast the chains off of your body. And allow yourself to fully minister to one another. To grow in your interconnectivity of the body of Christ. To engage in the spiritual intimacy one with another. Whereby this body will grow into something beyond what any of us can imagine. And you have to cast the chains off of your lips. And allow them to flow with the luxuriant message of Christ. Christ. To bring the living water of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ which has been richly poured into you out to the world about you as a flood. Just as Zachariah's mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed, that is how our tongues must be. That Greek word luo, to loose, to untie, to unbind, to remove the shackles and the fetters which have held us. We must remove the chains of our heart and our body and our lips. Beloved, this is the glory of the greatest message ever told. This is the superior message of Christ. But the question becomes, what will you do with it? What will you do with Him? Will you be set free? Will Jesus reign and change your heart because you are no longer captive? That is my prayer for you and for me and for everyone whom we would come in contact with. Just as Paul proclaimed to King Agrippa, Agrippa, I wish that you would be, even as I, short of these chains. May we go forth and proclaim that all need to know Christ and need to to know the glory that's been revealed in our hearts. Because isn't it a blessed knowledge that we have? I pray that it will empower you to carry it forward today.